Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. All right, grab your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 2 this morning. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1092 in that Bible. We're plugging our way through Acts chapter 2 in a series that we've called Ecclesia, Lessons from the Book of Acts. We wanted just to take a book of the Bible and start to work through it. Acts is where we landed. Uh, so we started in Acts 1-1 and are just moving our way through. And we will uh, be wrapping up the series for now next week. And then we're going to break for summer. It's a bit hard to get a sermon series going through the summer just with holidays and stuff. Uh, we'll pick it up again at a future date because we're only going to get a couple of chapters in. But Ecclesia is a Greek word and it is commonly translated as church. It means a gathering, uh, it means a family, it means an assembly, and so the book of Acts really is the story of the church. It is the story of the beginning of the church, and we can learn a lot about what it is to be the church and how we can be the church as we look back to what was the purest version of the church as led by people who walked with Jesus, who had seen him face to face. And so we're wanting to learn more about what kind of community we are supposed to be as we look to the book of Acts. For a long time in human history, there was a belief that the world just kind of ended at one point. And the concern is when ships went sailing, if they went far enough, they were going to sail off the end of the earth. And because sometimes when ships did go sailing, they wouldn't come back. Uh, that was a fair conclusion, I guess, to jump to at the time. And they believed that the world was flat. And so it just kind of looked like when you looked out over the horizon of the ocean, that there was a point probably where it just kind of stopped. And so the fear was if you sailed long enough, you would just pitch over the edge into death and destruction. And it was actually not that long until they began to figure out that that wasn't actually true. For one reason, some of those ships uh, would go out and they would come back and they would never find that end. But they also began to learn, even from things of how the stars moved in the sky, they began to understand that maybe the world wasn't flat. Uh, one of the common sort of history myths was that when Christopher Columbus went to sail, you know, to try and go around the world, uh, that he, they were worried he was going to fall off the edge of the world and that's why people didn't want him to go. But they already knew by that point that the world was round. Uh, one of the reasons they figured that out was when ships were were coming towards you on the horizon, uh, they realized you can see the top of the ships first. You could see the sails first because there was a curvature in the earth. And the, so the ship would sort of slowly come into sight and rise above. But for a long time, they even still have ancient maps that will, uh, as they were sketching out the world as they understood it, these maps would have the land and would have the water. And it would be marked on the maps like, don't go over here because there's pirates. You know, there's a reputation for pirates by this coast. So you want to stay away from there. And it would say, we're pretty sure there's some sort of sea monster over here so you don't want to sail over there and get to that part and then there was a point on the map that said this is the end of the world and it's just going to end and if you sail too close you're going to pitch right over the edge and the marking on the map was turn around guys if you get that point turn around don't go keep going in that direction there is death and destruction waiting for you if you head down that road and even while that all got disproved over time with, you know, science and astronomy, not astrology, astronomy and different things, uh, there is something about that, that when the church first begins, what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks is the first sermon ever preached 
in this new spirit-filled church. The Apostle Peter gets up to share. And when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are many different elements to it. Uh, and as long as they're biblical, they are all true. And we tend to emphasize certain ones over others. And so it is very easy in talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ to emphasize the love of God. And that is biblical, and it is true. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God motivates the gospel. We emphasize the grace of God, which is biblical, and it is true. It is incredible. The Bible says that if we will just turn to him, if we'll acknowledge our sins to him, God will forgive them. And we don't have to jump through 87 hoops, and we don't have to earn it, and we don't have to prove ourselves that God's heart towards us is compassion and grace. He is eager to forgive. That is biblical, and that is true. But there is also an element of the gospel, and we don't sing about it nearly as much, but the element of the gospel that we're going to talk about today, because Peter talks about it today, is because of your sin and selfishness, you are heading off the edge of a cliff. You are heading towards death and destruction. And the gospel call is turn around from the direction that you are going. Turn around. Turn to Jesus. Turn around from this path that you are on and find the salvation that he so graciously offers. Every day is full of opportunities for us to change, to go in a different direction. Even for those of us who already know Jesus, uh, there is still sin in our lives that we wrestle with. And so for all of us, the call is turn from the sinful direction that you're going. Follow after Jesus and walk in his ways. Just by way of recap, over the last number of weeks, we started in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus has risen from the dead. He meets with his apostles, and he says, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. Once the Holy Spirit comes, then you will go, and you will be my witnesses. Then you will go and share the gospel. But don't try to do this by yourself. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. On the day of Pentecost, the Bible says the Spirit is poured out. Every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin speaking in other languages that they don't know on their own. And as that happens, a crowd begins to gather who begins to say, what is this all about? Why are we hearing these sort of uneducated people who live in one part of the world speak all the languages of earth? We hear them declaring the glories of God in all these different languages. And then as the crowd is gathering and trying to make sense of this, Peter gets up. And we've looked at what Peter said for the last couple of weeks. We'll wrap up Peter's sermon today. And he says, all right, guys, here's what's happening. This Holy Spirit being poured out is what was promised to us. The Bible said that there will be a day when everybody will be filled with the Spirit. Everybody can know the Lord personally. Everybody can have a relationship with Him. That's what you're seeing happening right now. And that is able to happen because Jesus is alive. He is not dead. You guys killed Him, but He lives today. And as He lives, He has poured out His Spirit. And this is what you are experiencing. And we're coming to the end now of Peter's explanation of what began at Pentecost. So let's take a look at our text. We're again in Acts chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 34, as Peter continues preaching. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So that's a good Sunday if 3,000 people are getting saved on one day. I've not yet hit a 3,000-person Sunday. Maybe today's the day. Go find thousands of people. Let's see what happens. And so this is the wrap-up of Peter's sermon, and we're starting to get to the practical now. And every good sermon, every good book, every good podcast, whatever the teaching is, should wrap up with a practical, what do we do with this now? And so we're getting to that point. Peter is coming to the end. Now that we have talked about who Jesus is, now that we've talked about the goodness of God, now that we've looked to the scriptures, and what do the scriptures say, what do we do with this information that we have? And so as Peter uh, begins to explain, he starts talking about David. And he did this in last week verses as well. Verse 34 and 35, he says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so he's looking to scripture. He's quoting from Psalm 110. Uh, that is a psalm of David, where David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. And Peter is saying that David, although he is saying those words, uh, was not the Lord himself. David never ruled from heaven. David never went up to heaven. Uh, but we've just seen Jesus ascend to heaven, and Jesus is Lord. And this is actually a pretty new idea for people who uh, were trying to wrestle through who Jesus was. Because the common understanding at the time was that when the Messiah came, he would be someone like David. He would be a king, he would be a warrior, he would be a prophet, he would be wise, he would be after God's own heart. They were expecting someone who looked an awful lot like David. They had not yet wrestled through this idea that the Messiah would be Lord, that the Messiah would be God in the flesh. And so that was new for a lot of people. But Peter's saying, guys, it was in Psalm 110 the whole time that David said, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, God said to Jesus the Son, who was Lord, come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemy a footstool, for, your enemies a footstool for your feet. That the promise of the Father to the Messiah, who David says is the Lord, would be that you'll sit at the right hand of God and then your enemies will ultimately be subjected to you. So it was not a passage actually about David, because David was not Lord. David never went up to heaven, but we've seen Jesus go up to heaven. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus is waiting for every enemy to be made a footstool for your feet. Peter's saying, guys, it was in the scriptures the whole time. What you are seeing today, what we have experienced in Jesus, the ascension that we just saw is all in the Bible. It was all there the whole time. And now you are witnessing what we have been talking about as the Holy Spirit comes down. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Uh, there's a couple of times in here, like Peter's not letting them off the hook that Jesus died on their watch, that these are the same crowds who had been screaming, crucify him uh, 50 days earlier. It's the same group. It's the same city. It's the same people. So this is not an overly kind of light and fluffy, seeker-sensitive type message. This is not God loves you a lot. Isn't that wonderful? Respond to his love. That is part of the gospel. But this is a much more, hey, guys, you are sinners. The worst sin you could have committed would be to crucify the Son of God. And you guys did that. I've told you this before. You guys did that. He's not ignoring the weight of what has happened. 
But he says, but be assured of this. God has taken Jesus and has made him Lord and Messiah. And it's not that Jesus wasn't always Lord and Messiah. But as Jesus has now finished his work, as he has now risen from the dead, as he has now ascended to heaven, he has now sat down at the right hand of God. He is now sitting in the seat, clearly as Lord and Messiah. Up until now, humanity debated who Jesus was and what it meant, but God has so showed himself now through the life of Jesus, and especially in the resurrection and the ascension, and Jesus is now sitting in the seat as Lord and Messiah. He's sitting in the spot that he's supposed to be at. He has left earth and returned there, and God is now revealing him to the world. So in your eyes, Israel, you are now seeing him as Lord and Messiah. He is now seated exactly where he's supposed supposed to be, and he is ruling alongside God. Uh, we talk about this in the book of Hebrews, that the Bible says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, and the reason he sat down was because his work was done. There was nothing else for him to do. The cross and the resurrection did everything that needed to happen in order to deal with our sin and in order to deal with our death. And so there's nothing else Jesus needs to do to save us more or to add to that. And if there's nothing more that Jesus can do to add to our salvation, well, there's nothing more we can do to add to it either. We can't earn it. There's nothing we need to do other than receive everything that he did because he sat down at the right hand of God because his work is finished. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's this heavy conviction that lands on them. They were cut to the heart. Uh, many of us have had that experience in our walk with Jesus. Maybe it was when you got saved, or, or maybe you were saved already, but some sin came to your attention or something. But just the experience, the understanding of, I have not uh, been right with God. I have done something I shouldn't have done, or I am doing something I shouldn't be doing. They hear the message about the promises of God. They hear the message that Jesus is alive. They hear the message of the scriptures being fulfilled, and their reaction is they are cut to the heart. They know that they are sinners. They are aware of this. And now as Peter gets up to share this message, we know Peter already from the Gospels, right? The Gospels uh, tell us the story of what Peter's like and, and some of his personality. Uh, Peter talks a fair bit in the Gospels, and he's not an overly smart, polished guy. Like, if you had the Gospels alone, you wouldn't say, wow, what a brilliant theological argument you just made, Peter. Like, typically when Peter speaks in the Gospels, we say, what a dumb thing. How can I not be like Peter? Like, how can I be less like that? and not put my foot in my mouth and say stupid things. Not always. Once in a while, he has a moment of clarity. Most of what Peter says in the gospel is foolish, and it's, it's us, right? It's us in our humanness, lack of understanding, lack of wisdom. Peter kind of speaks for us all in that sense. So let's not be too hard on him. And so we know Peter already has often said foolish things, has often misunderstood Jesus, has often missed the point of what God is coming to do. He is not a polished, put-together speaker. And yet he stands up on the day of Pentecost, having had no time to prepare a message, speaks this word, and 3,000 people are about to get saved. It's not because Peter's so great. It's not because he went to Bible college, because he didn't. It's not because he had sat down and crafted together a well-put-together sermon, because he didn't. It's not because he always knew the right thing to say, because we know he didn't. But Peter was willing to be available that day, 
And as Peter stood up, not on his own strength, but as, I, as he stood up in the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people are cut to the heart. The conviction of God falls on them. And they are about to turn their lives around and give themselves to Jesus. So there is a conviction that comes when the Holy Spirit comes. And Jesus said that is one of the things the Holy Spirit would do. That would be one of his jobs. John 16, 8 says that he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That we can't see our sin by ourselves. The Holy Spirit has to show us. We can't understand the Bible by ourselves. The Holy Spirit has to open our eyes. We can't understand about judgment and, and how to live right. We can't do that on our own. That is the work of the Spirit in our lives. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict about sin. He will show us what the sin is. I think some of us feel, and I've seen enough of these preachers over time, that it's our job to hammer people with sin enough until they feel guilty enough that hopefully they will change and do something different. And that part actually isn't our job. It is our job by all means to speak the truth. It is our job to say this is what the Bible says. It is our job to call sin, sin. The things that the Bible says are sinful. It is our job to do those things absolutely. It's the Holy Spirit's job to open someone's eyes to their sinfulness. We need to be able to be available, and we need to be able to speak the truth, but we don't have to hammer people with stuff. The night that I got saved, I had grown up in church my whole life. Uh, my parents had taught us the Bible my whole life. I was 18 years old, uh, walking far from God, wanting nothing to do with any of it, and having a meal with a friend. I've shared this story before, and he just made a comment in passing about uh, some, something God was showing him about the sin in his own life. And he just said, oh, God's really working on me in this area. Uh, I need to do better. And then anyway, Howard Leaf's going to do this year. He just, that's how quick it was. It was just a passing comment. Uh, he didn't say it to me. It was about himself. But as he talked about that sin that day in that one sentence, I was engaging in the same sin on a much greater level. And I knew the sin was wrong. I'd heard a million sermons about it in my lifetime. My parents had taught me better than what I was living. But on that day, as he said that one sentence about that one sin, I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach that day. No other sermon I'd heard on it had ever done that. No other lecture from my parents had ever done that. On that day, I felt like I'd just been kicked. I felt sick. I actually felt sick. And I went home that night and just with this overwhelming sense that I was not right with God, I was not living the way that I should, that I would be in desperate trouble if I were to ever find myself suddenly standing before his throne. And all of a sudden, after hearing that and, and knowing about it my whole life on this night, that got real, real fast. And I went home that night, and I got on my knees, and I said, Lord, I am sorry for what I've done, and I want to know you. And that was my turning around moment. Everything changed from that point. No amount of sermons or lectures or books or whatever on their own were enough to convince me to change, but the Holy Spirit showing up in one moment was enough for me to get up off my knees that day and never be the same again because Jesus was real to me for my first time. And so as we talk, talk about, you know, we are praying for people we love, we are wanting people to know Jesus, we are wanting people to, to you know, be convicted of their sins and to turn their lives around, our big focus needs to be, Holy Spirit, what are you doing 
to make that happen? And how can I be a part of that? What do you need me to do? What should I say? But where is it going to be your power at work? Not just how do I come up with it myself in a way that I'm going to hammer my loved one to the point where they feel guilty and scared enough to turn around. But no, that fruit can work temporarily, but it doesn't last. But Holy Spirit, where are you at work in their lives? What do you want me to say? When do you want me to say it? How do you want me to say it? Because when you speak, Spirit of God, lives get transformed for good. That is fruit that lasts. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict, and that's something we need to be seeking. Uh, sometimes we get asked the question uh, about condemnation and conviction, because condemnation uh, is this guilty feeling that we get, and a lot of Christians carry it, where, uh, you know, we've been told we're sinners, and we carry the weight of that, and it's kind of heavy, and it's dark, it's often legalistic and burdensome. Uh, there's a heaviness to it. Um, and yet the Bible does say the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, that there is, there is a part of this that is good and important. And so this is just my definition of it, I, as I understand it. I'm not saying it's right, but it's how I understand these two things, is that condemnation is guilt plus shame. Guilt in itself is not a bad thing. Guilt is just the feeling of, I did something wrong. And if it comes to my attention that I've broken one of God's commandments, or if it comes to my attention that I've hurt somebody, or, or I'm out of bounds in some area, a guilty feeling comes because you've done something wrong. When our kids do something wrong and they get in trouble, they feel guilty, and they should if they broke a rule. So guilt itself is not the problem. Guilt is just the acknowledgement that I messed up. Uh, so condemnation is guilt plus shame. There's a heaviness to it. We can start to feel like this will never get better. I will never be better. I will never change. I can't pray. Condemnation pulls us away from God because we're feeling that heaviness. Condemnation pulls us away from other Christians because we don't want anyone to know what we did. So condemnation is, is of the enemy. Uh, it is a dark, heavy thing, and a lot of Christians wrestle with it. But conviction is guilt plus hope. When the Holy Spirit convicts, there's guilt plus hope. It's the Holy Spirit is coming as a loving parent to say, there's something in your life that needs attention because sin is really bad for us. It feels good in the moment, whatever it is. It does something for us or else we would never fall into it. But sin is bad for us. It, it's spoken of in Scripture as a living thing that gets its hooks in us and multiplies and spreads and doesn't just spread to us. It spreads to others. It kind of gets personified in Scripture almost like a virus or a cancer, that it is something that, that is looking to take over. And when we walk in sin, it does. It screws up our heart. It corrupts our mind. It breaks our relationships. It brings all sorts of consequences. And so when God comes and says, don't do these things, that's the heart of a loving father saying, don't do these things that are going to hurt you and kill you. It's these, the heart of a father saying, I want you free from this stuff. There is freedom available for you. You don't have to carry the weight of these things anymore. You can turn from these things and find healing and find wholeness and find freedom because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom that he comes to set us free. And so when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, even when it fell on me that first night that I came to Jesus, it was a horrible feeling. Like the guilt was real. I was very aware of my sinfulness. I was very aware of God's holiness. And yet there was something in me that knew that if I were to ask him, I would be forgiven that there would be something that would change if I were to seek him. So the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes. It might not feel good, but it's coming for your good. 
there's hope that comes with it. The conviction of the Spirit is coming to make me better, to, to set me free, to help me forward, to do something good in my life, as unpleasant as it might be in the moment. So the crowd is feeling that. They are, they are not just saying, what horrible sinners we are, there is nothing for us. They are saying, they are cut to the heart and saying, what do we do? There is a hope there that there is a way out of this. We are aware of our sin. We are aware we are not right with God. But brothers, what do we do? There's, there's got to be more. There's got to be something we can do. There's got to be a step we can take. And there is. Peter says in verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit conviction never comes just about the sin. It's to deal with the sin so that you can walk into greater life. You can walk into greater wholeness. But there is the sin that needs to be dealt with along the way. So the word repent there in the Greek is metanoia. It shows up multiple times in the New Testament. Metanoia, uh, often translated as repent or repentance. And yet there's more to it than that. Because for some of us, uh, when we think about the word repentance, we think about, well, repentance is when we become aware of our sins and we confess it to the Lord, we seek his forgiveness. That's repentance. And it is in part. But that's not the whole story. Because the word metanoia literally means change. It means transform. Change your heart. Change your mind. Change your direction. Change this direction that you're going in. Stop going in the same path of sin and selfishness. Stop getting ready to plunge off that cliff where death and destruction is waiting for you. You are heading in the wrong direction in your life. Repentance says, turn it all around. 180 degrees. It means change. And those other two pieces are a part of it. So when we're talking about repentance, we're talking about there is conviction, and then there is confession, and then there is changing. Just to do the preacher thing of doing things with one letter. Conviction, confession, and changing. So the conviction we've talked about. There is a good guilty feeling that comes that God can bring about. And again, we see it in our kids right now. Our kids get in trouble a fair bit. I don't know if it's more or less than other kids, but it feels like a lot some days. And it's just when you've broken a rule and you're called out, you know, Matthew just, like he knows there is a guilty feeling. Now, as parents, we don't want him to stay there, right? We don't want him walking around with that feeling. But there does need to be an acknowledgement that, you know, you're not allowed to punch your sister and you punched her 12 times in the face. Not at all a true story. So there's a guilty feeling that is good and important when it comes from God that says you've broken the commandment. You have fallen short of what love requires. You have not treated your brother or sister well. You shouldn't have said that thing. You shouldn't have done that thing. When we go, oh, yeah, I shouldn't, that is not a bad thing. That's the first step. We can't get anywhere if we don't first acknowledge that what we did was wrong. So the conviction comes first to show us where we are wrong. After conviction, we want to move to confession. And confession is where we seek the Lord. And we say, Lord, I have sinned, and I need your forgiveness, right? And we've all probably done that at one point or another. And so confession is confessing our sins to the Lord. But also, James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another as well. And so the Catholic Church actually does this really well. We don't agree with everything that they say on it, but the idea that you would regularly go, in their case to your priest, you would regularly go to somebody you trust, 
and acknowledge, here is where I have sinned. Here is what I have done in the last week or the last two weeks or whatever. And to have someone hear you and not judge you, but be able to, to unburden that in a safe place with someone that you trust, like that's actually a really good idea. And so where we would disagree with the Catholics is we would say, you don't have to go to your priest or your pastor. You could confess to anybody. And the priests have a thing where when you're done, they would say, we absolve you in the name of the Father, the Son. Like, we are forgiving your sins. And we'd say, no, God forgives sins. A person doesn't do that. And then the priests will often also say, uh, you know, go home and say 25 Our Fathers and 10 Hail Marys. Like, you have to do some penance to prove to God that you're really sorry. And we would say, nope, Jesus sat down. You don't have to add anything to the forgiveness. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You have to ask for it, and you have to receive it. So we would disagree with them on those points. One of the things that happened in the Reformation, when the Catholic Church was really the main church on the planet and had gotten very evil and very corrupt, the Protestant branch of the church rebelled against them, and then the Anabaptist church broke off from that. And one of the things the Protestants and Anabaptists said in that time was, get rid of everything Catholic because the Catholic Church in their mind was so corrupt and evil at that time. And there were, there were ways in which that was really good, because there was legitimately some very bad doctrine and some very bad practice, some very greedy and fleshy and evil things going on. But then there was a couple of things like this, where you go, you know what, Protestants and Anabaptists don't really have a good confession model. Like, we just, it's not part of our spiritual lives. We might confess things to the Lord, but we don't really have it built in anywhere that you confess your sins to one another, as James tells us to do. But every single one of us needs somebody. It doesn't have to be your pastor. It could be, certainly. But somebody that you trust, that you can go to and say, I am struggling with this, and they can say it back to you, and you can pray for one another and keep one another accountable. We need to do that if we're going to honor James 5.16, which tells us confess your sins to one another. You don't need to tell the world, and you need to pick this person very carefully because it has to be a safe place. It has to be somebody that you trust. You don't want someone who's going to broadcast. But to have somebody safe that you can go to to share that. I have a friend, Jesse, and we have done it for many, many years. And there is something very powerful about being able to go to somebody who knows all your junk, and my wife does as well, uh, and be able to just say, ugh, this is where I'm at this week, and I feel awful about it. And to have someone pray together, and at times, hey, let's make a strategy together for how we're going to do better in these areas. And then at the end of it, to be able to say, we don't believe in the priests who have the ability to forgive, but Jesse and I would say to each other after our time together, uh, you know, 1 John 1 says that, if we are faithful to confess our sins, he will be faithful to forgive, right? That's the condition on receiving God's forgiveness, is that we have to be faithful to confess. And then he gives us the forgiveness. We don't have to do any more than that. And so to be able to say at the end of our time together, Jesse, uh, not that I'm doing it, but just in accordance with what the Word of God says, you've confessed your sins today, and God's Word says you are forgiven. And there is something powerful in hearing those words, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is something very powerful about hearing the words, you are forgiven, and not that I'm forgiving him in God's stead or he's forgiving me in that way, but just in accordance with the word of the Lord, with what the Bible says, you are forgiven. And as you do that one to another as well, it's really hard to get arrogant. It's really hard to get a big head. When you go, well, between my wife and Jesse, they know every garbage part about who I am. 
They know every secret sin. They know every hidden motivation. They know every struggle that I'm having in my mind or in my heart or in my actions or in my words. They know all of it. And there's a humility required to go there. But the Bible says God opposes the proud. He gives his grace to the humble. And one of the reasons you might not be able to break out of the sin that you're struggling with is because you're not humbling yourself enough to do what James tells us to do and get the help of talking to another person who you trust, who's able to walk with you through this stuff. And so confession, we can do pretty good in part. I think most of us are probably pretty good at confessing to God, maybe not as good about confessing to somebody else that we trust, but that's the next step in that. But then we don't want to just stop there. Right? We don't want to just say, be able to acknowledge, oh, I sinned because I feel bad about it. And we don't even want to stop at, I sinned, I feel bad about it, and I've talked to God about it. And we don't even want to stop at, I sinned, I feel bad about it, I've talked to God about it, I've talked to my accountability partner about it. We need to go a step beyond even that. And that is actually changing. That's actually turning around from the direction that we're going in. That's actually changing our behavior. If I treat my wife terribly and I tell her sorry every single day, but never do anything to actually change the behavior that's hurting her, you would be right to question how sorry I actually am. You would be right to question how committed I am to the marriage. If all I do is acknowledge my sin, and if all I do is confess and apologize for my sin, but never actually change direction of where I'm going, then I'm missing out on that key part of the word repentance, which is change now. Change direction. Stop doing what you're doing and begin to go in a different direction. And we don't do that by ourselves. We can't do that by ourselves. Without the Holy Spirit helping us and without a brother or sister in the Lord coming alongside us. Sometimes we think, well, I just need me and God. It's like, nope, he put you in a body. You need one another. And I fully believe, after 18-plus years of ministry now, one of the main reasons we don't see change in the area of sin is because we try to do it all by ourselves. We're, we're too embarrassed to share what we're struggling with. And one of the things that happens when we start to get people comfortable with sharing is that you realize, oh, wow, lots of people are going through what I'm going through. My accountability partner, who knew? They're struggling with the exact same thing uh, that I've been carrying for years, feeling like I'm a terrible Christian, like there is something about the sharing of life together in this area that is so important. Some of us are really good at acknowledging our sin, really good at saying sorry for our sin, but we never get to the changing part. And that really is the heart of repentance. It's turn it around. So when the crowd comes to Peter and says, okay, so we see uh, the promises of God being fulfilled, then we're on board with that. Jesus is alive. Okay, we're on board with that. We're feeling cut to the heart and convicted of our sin. What do we do? Peter's response is change. Repent. Change. Change directions of your life. And not just that, change and be baptized. And baptism from this day, day one, day of Pentecost, 2,000 plus years, baptism has been the sign that someone is a follower of Jesus. We don't, when we do a membership application here, that's kind of a man-made thing that we have added over time. Baptism really is the membership signature. It is the way that you tell the world, I have changed. I have turned my life towards Jesus. And nobody is perfect who has been baptized. We don't expect perfection from anybody. But the question is, have you reoriented your life towards him? You're not perfect yet, and you won't be in this lifetime. But where you were living for yourself and for sin or for selfishness, have you changed directions towards Jesus now? And if you have changed directions in your life towards Jesus, if you are following after him, then you're ready for baptism now. 
These guys are getting baptized. They, like, I have talked to you more today than they've heard from Peter. Like, they don't know anything other than these few short words. They don't have their theology all worked out yet. They have had not had any time to, you know, prove anything, that they are really turning from their sin. Like, they don't know anything, but they have been cut to their heart. They are turning their lives towards Jesus, and they're getting baptized right away. And sometimes people hold back on baptism and say, well, I want to, you know, I need to work through some stuff first, or I want to, you know, hit a certain level, or I want to see God do something before I get there. And we would just say, you know, in some ways you need to get baptized when you're ready, I guess. But Jesus told us to get baptized. It's an obedience issue. These guys had none of those signs or none of that maturity or anything. But they just said, you know what, We're, we're following Jesus now. And as we turn our lives to follow Jesus, you're ready at that point. There's nothing else you need to wait for. Uh, There's nothing else that needs to happen. So turn around, be baptized, and then he says you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit comes again, uh, we can't do this on our own. Jesus said you're going to need a helper, and I'm going to send you a helper. And the Holy Spirit will come, and he will make his home in you. And he'll do many things in our lives. He convicts us of sin. He changes us from the inside out. He brings us into the presence of God. There's many roles that the Spirit plays in our lives. But Peter says, this is a gift from God for you. And part of our job as Christ followers is to daily say, Holy Spirit, fill me up yet again. Holy Spirit, lead me forward today. Holy Spirit, make my words powerful. Holy Spirit, when I'm talking to my unsaved loved one about Jesus, you do the convicting and you do the work. Uh, You do your work in, in my life. You show me where I need to go. The Holy Spirit will come and do these things. Verse 39, the promise is for you, Israel. The people of the Jewish faith who are there at that moment, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call that Paul would talk about this in Romans, that uh, the gospel came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That Israel is God's chosen people. They will always be his chosen people. And the language gets used in the New Testament that it's kind of like Israel, the Jewish people, are God's natural-born children. And the rest of us who are not Jewish, we've been adopted in. We're the foster kids that God in his grace has invited to come and sit at his table. Uh, And so our heart for the Jewish people has to always be one of reverence and one of respect. If you have anything but love in your heart for the Jewish people, uh, that's a good time just to get on your face before the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to show me uh, how to love them the way that you love them. Because they are our brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, even if they haven't accepted Jesus yet. And we are the ones who are kind of just lucky to be invited. Because as the gospel is coming, it's the first time that God is saying, I'm not just going to be primarily dealing with Israel anymore. Uh, The promise comes to you and to your children, to the Jewish people, but also for all of those who are far off. That very quickly, this mission is about to go global. And people of who are not of the Jewish faith are going to meet the Lord for the first time in many different ways as the gospel begins to spread out there. Almost done. Verse 40. With many other words, Peter warned them. He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And not that we save ourselves, literally. Jesus is the Savior. We can't save ourselves. But this idea that you've been thrown a lifeline, there is an offer on the table for your salvation. You are heading off a cliff in your sin and in your selfishness. God has offered you a way out. Turn the ship around and head towards Jesus. And for those of us who do walk with Jesus, we too are called to save ourselves from this corrupt generation. The world is evil. Sin is 
everywhere, we are to be different than the world. We are to pull ourselves out of the world's influence, not cutting ourselves off from the world, but avoiding the evil, the corruption, the sin that constantly pulls and constantly tempts and constantly draws us into. We are to pull ourselves out of that by his strength and by his grace. So as the gospel message comes for this, this very first time, uh, as Peter shares, this is what it's all about. God has made promises that are being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is alive, and he is your Savior. So your job in response is to turn your life around and follow after him. And for those of us who know Jesus already, it's to acknowledge that there is still sin in our lives. We are not perfect yet. And so what are we doing about that? What do we need to turn away from? Because even though we are saved, the New Testament makes really clear that sin is still to be dealt with in our lives with severity. I mean, Jesus uses the language of, if your eye's causing you to sin, poke it out. If your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. We are to have a radical attitude towards sin. There's a great Philip Yancey quote that I'll butcher, I'm sure, but paraphrased, he basically said, Christians are really good at getting angry at people who sin differently than they do. That when it comes to our own stuff, we're really good at justifying. We're really good at making, we're really good at saying, oh, I shouldn't be doing it, but it's not that big a deal. I'm not nearly as bad as so-and-so. We are really good at finding ways to make our sin not that serious. But even for those of us who were maybe not going off the edge of a cliff because we've already turned towards Jesus and so we know our eternity is secure, our sin in us is still doing incredible damage. And there's a terrifying verse in Romans chapter 1 that says if we continue in our sinfulness, if we refuse to turn away, if we refuse to take it seriously, if we refuse to take steps to walk in a better way, that there is a point where God gives us over to our sin. There's a point where God says, if you want to go that way, go for it. And you will reap all the consequences that are bound up in what happens when we live in a way that God doesn't want us to live. These are scary verses, for sure. And there is a fear of the Lord that is very good and very godly and very holy. My kids don't walk around scared of me, but they are scared of the discipline that I have the ability to give, right? They don't walk around tiptoeing, but when mom or dad raises their voice or speaks in a certain way, there is something that shifts in them because they fear the consequences of their actions. They fear the discipline that is coming. That's the fear of the Lord that is very good. Not that we tiptoe around worried that he's going to hammer us all the time, but that we are, uh, we are appropriately humbled and appropriately fearful of the consequences of our sin if we don't turn away. The word repent means turn. It means change. It means be transformed. And all of us are called to turn away from our sin. Whether we're hearing this for the first time today, whether we've walked, for Jesus, walked with Jesus for a lot of years and just have some things we need to work on, either way we are called to turn away from our sin. Verse 41 says that those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Just mind-blowing. They are hearing this message for the very first time. No one has ever preached this message before, and 3,000 are cut to the heart, and they turn their lives around. We don't see it in this story so much, but we see it in several other stories in the book of Acts, that when someone comes to Jesus, their response is just this incredible, overflowing joy. That repentance might not be fun to think about, that conviction of sin does not feel good, 
But the good news of the gospel is that there is forgiveness available. There is grace available. That as we turn towards him, there is blessing involved as we turn towards him. That to follow Jesus is to follow, we believe, in the best possible way you can go. And although change is not always easy, when God calls us to change in our lives, when he calls us to turn from that behavior, when he calls us to transform and become different, it's always for our good. It's always for our best. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done today. If you want to keep going with this conversation today, by the way, we do have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. We'd be very happy to keep chatting about this and to keep having this conversation go. There's heavy stuff here today, but we want to be able to keep chatting, and we really do enjoy keeping the conversation going. So please feel free to avail yourself of that. That word repentance, to turn around. The church has always been a community that shared that message. It's time to turn around. It's time to change. And change is not always easy. Change always costs us something. There is always sacrifice involved in change. In some ways, it can feel a lot easier that I'm just gonna stay in my rut. I'm gonna go in the direction that I'm going. But if we can acknowledge that our sin was so serious that Jesus had to die in order to deal with it, then our sin needs to be that serious to us, that we are not gonna just be okay with it in our lives. And the Bible talks about the way we live our lives, says one day we'll stand before God and we're gonna give an account for every careless word. We're gonna give an account for every action. We're gonna give an account for every secret motivation, every hidden agenda in our heart. Like it basically says everything you've ever said or done or felt, even the secret stuff that you never breathe the soul to, everything will be laid bare towards the one to whom we must give an account. And that, again, these are fear of the Lord verses. But it shouldn't be something that paralyzes us in fear. It should be something that spurs us on to press into him. It should be something that spurs us on to seek his forgiveness. It should be something that spurs us on to live better and to change and to say, all right, what am I actually going to do today to leave that sin behind? What am I going to do? What can I put in place in my life? What accountability? What confession? What practical steps can I take in order to turn this around? Because when God comes to say there's sin there, it's so you can be free of it. It's so you can leave it behind and walk in healing and walk in wholeness and walk in freedom. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And when the Spirit comes to lead us in conviction and confession and repentance, it's for our good. It's for our freedom. And there is grace available that when we turn to Him, if we are faithful to, con to confess our sins, He will be faithful to forgive. And so this should spur us towards God, not away from Him. It should spur us towards action, not pulling back from it. Would you stand with me, please? And just close your eyes and bow your head just for a second before we sing, before we worship, before we acknowledge the amazing gift that He's been given. Spirit of God, we invite you now for the purpose of conviction, that you would come search us, O Lord. Search us, O Lord. Every word, every thought, every secret agenda, every motivation of our heart, every action. Come and show us, Lord, what needs attention right now. Let us not be overwhelmed by a hundred things that we could work on. What needs attention right now? Let it rise in our minds just as we wait here for a moment. Thank you, Lord, that you don't come to condemn, 
that your word says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death, Lord, that we would be uh, not overwhelmed by guilt or stuck in that place, but that this would spur us on, Lord, as we remember the other side of conviction, not just that you are trying to get us free, but Lord, that you do forgive sins. There is a God in heaven who forgives us. There is grace available that we desperately need. And so we call upon you for your grace now today, Lord, that Holy Spirit, as you convict and as we confess, we are forgiven and that we will walk in greater healing and wholeness with your help and by your power as we seek after you. So come now and refresh us and renew us. Show us what we need to do next as we reorient our, reorient our lives towards you, Jesus, and as you walk with us through it all because you do love us and you do want to work good for us and you do know what's best for us. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps as you were sitting there and the Holy Spirit was just ministering over you that he brought something to your heart that you need to talk through or work through or pray with somebody as well. We've got people available after service that would love to sit with you, uh, to would love to pray with you, to encourage you as well. So we ask you to come forward and do that. Don't leave this place without connecting with someone if the Lord has put that on your heart. And as we are creating a, a place of ministry here, we love you to visit and connect. If you want to do that in the foyer, that'd be amazing. Uh, so we can do that here in the, in the church, in this congregation here, so we can create a place of ministry and encouragement for people. So as you go out this week, as you think about what's ahead, uh, think through also this idea of, do you have people in your life that you can pray with and talk with and confess things to? And you know, it's hard sometimes when you don't have somebody, somebody like that in your life. And if you don't have someone in your life, pray into that and see who the Lord brings to mind. Maybe there's a connection you can make with somebody here at the church. Maybe somebody in your life group. Maybe somebody at work that's a Christ follower as well. Because we're not in this alone. We're in this together. And we're all broken people. And it's important to have people in your life that you can speak and share with. I've got folks like that in my life. I'm sure others do as well. And it's such a blessing to have that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you that we can gather here today and as we go about our week, I pray, Lord, you'd lead us in all things. Give us opportunities to sit at your feet and to be able to come in our brokenness and who we are. And I thank you that we can do that because of your grace and mercy and your forgiveness. And as we think through that, even this morning, for folks that just need prayer and encouragement, Lord, lead them this morning and guide folks that are praying with them as well. Give them lots of wisdom and discernment and words that would be helpful for that particular situation as they pray together so lord be blessed in all things thank you for your forgiveness thank you for your love thank you for your sacrifice for us jesus thank you for each one here today and wherever people are at this morning holy spirit come and meet them exactly where they are in jesus name amen have a great sunday meadowbrook